Welcome to the Men's Global Livestream. If you're joining us and you have a Bible, I want you to hold two spots, one in Matthew 21 and the other in Luke chapter 10. We're in a series called You Are Here. And when you think of that statement, you are here, you might think of a mall, map, or at a trailhead if you're a hiker, it says you are here. Or maybe uh, on your phone, you look at it and you drop a pin and it lets you know your location. And the big idea for this series, You Are Here, is that God has placed you and has purposed you right where you are to execute his plans with the people that he brings into your life, both in structured ways and unstructured ways. In structured ways, you got your family, you got your friends, you got your church, you got your circles of relationships, you got your network. And then there's unstructured moments where God brings complete strangers into your life and he's purposed you and placed you to execute his plans, even with perfect strangers. It reminds me of a flight that I took from Chicago to Montreal a few years ago. And quietly, I was hoping that there would be nobody in the seat, but I was open to whatever God wanted to do. So the plane's filling up and I'm thinking to myself, well, I guess I'm gonna be by myself uh, on this flight, which was okay. But then uh, this guy rushes onto the plane and he comes down the aisle and sure enough, he's like, excuse me, but that's my seat, I'm sorry. I'm like, no worries. And so I get out and he gets into a seat, right? And we just start some small talk and I find out that he's a chemistry professor. Okay, so think about that for a second. You got a chemistry professor, a man of science, uh, sitting next to a pastor and a man of faith. So that's just for starters. And as we get into it, I'm just asking him some questions. And the first question that I asked him, I said, well, where did you do your graduate work? And he said, well, I did it at uh, Dartmouth. And I had a really interesting roommate. His, his name is uh, Dinesh D'Souza. And um, I wondered, you know, I'm, I've always wondered what, what he's up to because I think Dinesh is operating in kind of the, the, the faith marketplace or in, in the faith zone. And uh, just so happened that very week from Amazon, I got a package at my door and I ordered a book called What's So Great About Christianity by none other than Dinesh D'Souza, this guy's roommate at Dartmouth when he was doing his graduate work in chemistry. So I simply reached down and I said, oh, you want to know what he's up to? Well, here you go. This is what he's up to. I just bought his book, What's So Great About Christianity. And I, I had notes in it and I said, hey, and I'll, I'll send you one, okay? Um, that was the first little magic door that opened uh, in this random encounter in row 19 on a flight from Chicago to Montreal. So we keep talking and I discover that he's a World War II buff, all right? He loves history, he loves World War II history. Guess who else loves World War II history? And he tells me about his uncle who flew fighter planes in World War II. And I said, so where does he, where was he stationed or where what what theater did he operate in in World War II and he said the Pacific Theater and I said where in the Pacific Theater and he said you know my my uncle's 
most heavy combat action was in the Battle of Guam. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm Guamanian. And if you've heard me talk about my story or my family story, my mom was liberated by U.S. forces and a third Marine land invasion of the island. And my mom was liberated from a prison camp where? On the island of Guam. So there's door number two, uh, a divine door that magically uh, opens up. So we land and have a great discussion. Um, and I tell him that I'm going to get him the book and I get his uh, phone number and email address. Uh, so then I go to where I need to go to and they're having a speaker's dinner. So sometimes when you go to a conference, they'll get all the speakers at the conference together before the conference start, and they'll have a meal so that we can get to know each other. And so I'm at the speaker's dinner, and someone says, so how is your flight out? And I said, well, let me tell you about it. And I tell them what I just told you. And the woman, she's a volunteer uh, who's sitting next to me at my table, says, what was that chemistry professor's name? I said his name was Phil. What university is he a chemistry professor at? I said the University of Montreal. She goes, I am Phil's assistant at the university in the chemistry department. And I've been praying for Phil that he would come to Christ and that God would do something. And I'm, I'm just like, now it's like, wow. Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous, right? So it was just a plane flight. It's just some personal space. But that space is God's space. And I could have done what's very accepted in today's culture. I could have zoned out, put in my earbuds, and just kind of retreated into my own personal headspace, let my feelings about wanting to kind of have some me time dictate my interaction or non-interaction, with the new guy coming into row 19. But listen, and here's the big point. The man of God who walks with God knows different. More specifically, that your space is not yours at all. There's no such thing. And as we've been talking about in this series, God is at work in every space where there are people that you are placed with, right? It's his space, whether you feel like it, or not. And when I get on the plane, I wasn't really feeling like having a long extended interaction. I was a little self-absorbed and wanted a little me time, but that didn't matter. My space wasn't my space at all. It's his space to work in. And there's a theme here as we talk about how God has purposed us and placed us with people to execute his plans that in a moment of intersection, there is a no to yourself and a yes to God and to people. Now, Jesus, in his most courageous moment, didn't feel like obeying God for the sake of other people. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, may this cup or experience pass from me, yet not my will, but your will, be done. He didn't want to go to the cross, but because of who was asking, the Father, uh, he did do what was uncomfortable. And aren't you glad? 
I mean, will, will you do the same? If Jesus lives in you, it's a natural connection that if Jesus lives in you, that we as God's men, filled with the Spirit of Christ, will do the same for other people. So this is a powerful session because it gets to the heart of obedience to God right where we are in a moment. And we want to look at working past feelings and working into a more faith-filled, spirit-empowered obedience in the spaces where we are and where people's futures intersect. And to start, if you have the downloaded notes, we're going to look at the, the Bible passage here in Matthew 21, right at the top. And uh, what we see in this is we have uh, three characters. We have a father and two sons. We have a request made by the father of the two sons in the moment. And then what I want you to listen for as Jesus talks about this little parable is the two processes of response by son number one and son number two, because Jesus affirms only one of those responses. So let's dig into the passage. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 26. Jesus says this, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He, the son, answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. So in this little vignette, this parable, Jesus is coaching up uh, his guys, and he tells this parable of the father, the two sons, the request, and two processes of response. So let's unpack that. Let's look at son number one, all right? The first thing he does is he reacts, all right? He reacts with a no, right? But what he really meant was, I don't feel like it. Because then, step two with son number one is then he reflects, okay, on who's doing the asking. And then step three he repents. It actually says right there, Jesus's words, he changed his mind, which is what it means to repent. It just means you're like, well, that was my initial response. I really didn't feel like doing it, but I'm reflecting on who's asking. And then he repents. He's like, you know what? I better do that. And he changes his mind and he goes, right? Now, with the first son, uh, you might think, uh, uh, a better response might be, oh, you got it, dad. Sure, I'll go, right? Where there's no struggle. But obedience without struggle reveals very little about your true commitment, right? It's when you don't want to do it and you do it anyways that your real commitment to the father in this instance is confirmed. Now, let's go to the second son and unpack him. So, the second son is told to go work in the vineyard, and he just comes right out with it, like immediately. He reacts, all right? He reacts with a yes, outwardly, right? But then, secondly, he refuses, right? He refu he's refusing inwardly while he's reacting positively outwardly, right? And then, in the end, he just 
rebels outwardly. He rebels against the father. So uh, the second son agrees to the father's request right away. Why? Because he didn't want his inner rebellion exposed and confronted. So he puts the emotional possibility of conflict out of the way by, by outwardly agreeing while he's inwardly rebelling, right? And the second son projects this image or this impression, right? But from his heart, he's a no from, from the get-go, right? And from this, Jesus is showing us that when, when we say words and he listens to our words, when we pray and he hears our prayers, when we take actions that, that he sees, it's with a stethoscope on our hearts. We see actions. Jesus sees intentions. Because in the end, Jesus said, the first son, the one who struggles to obey, but then reflects and then repents with both change of mind and a change of action. The first son is the one that obeys the father. So we see in this little parable that that God's got a stethoscope. We might have an outward appearance, outward words, outward prayers, outward actions, but 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 Jesus has got his stethoscope on and he's he's training it on our heart to see what our true intentions are. And he models this whole thing of maybe not wanting to do something and even expressing that to God when he says in Matthew 26, verse 39, my father, if it is possible, may this cup or this experience be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And what what do we get from both the parable about the two sons and Jesus' own modeling is that it says, God's okay if you're struggling to obey. That rhymes. God's okay if you're struggling to obey. He's not okay with appearing to obey. And that should, that should cause us to pause for a second. God's not about image in words or claims, right? He's about substance and heart and action. And what we see here with with both Jesus and the first son is a battle in the moment. And the battle is this. It's what is being asked versus who is doing the asking. And if we, we extract from both the parable and from Jesus's own modeling, right, we have the freedom to struggle and react, right? But we also have a commission to reflect on who's doing the asking, and then we're given a chance to make a real choice and change our mind and repent with a change of mind and actions, and then respond with a yes. And and so in both Jesus's example with himself um, and in the parable of the two sons, we see that it's it's the struggle, actually, that reveals a lot. Little struggle, 
reveals little. A lot of struggle reveals a lot about commitment, about our commitment to Christ, all right? And so what we're gonna do now is turn the page and, and look at a real situation where there were claims of knowledge of God's will, uh, but the conduct that is right alongside the claim is being exposed by Jesus himself. And it's, it's, a, it's a famous story of the Good Samaritan where a man asks, well, who's my neighbor? So let's pick up the story. We're going to do it in two sections. And the first section we want to do it in is Luke 10, verses 25 to 29. So let's pick up the story and set, set, the, set, set the, the scene. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So let's unpack the flow of what's going on here, and we're going to draw out some, some things to consider as a man of God, all right? So the first thing that we see and where Jesus uh, inquires and this man inquires is what I know, okay? That's what we see first in here. So the expert, quote unquote, in the law tests Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, well, what do you know about what it says in scripture? And the guy, um, you know, tells him, you, know, you gotta love God and you gotta, you gotta treat your neighbor as yourself, all right? So that's the first thing. There's, there's Christ and there's this man and it's what they, what they both know. So the expert in the law knows that it's God's will that we're supposed to love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to treat our neighbor as ourselves. all right? And Jesus wants to make sure that he understands that he already knows what he needs to know. Secondly, what we see is what I do. So what he knows comes to the surface. The guy articulates what he knows. And then Jesus says, okay, do this and you'll live, okay? Um, but then the man is concerned, clearly, because he asks a clarifying question. He's concerned about, well, what does actually treating my neighbor as myself, and this is why we have to hone in on this, you know, what, what does that actually look like, all right? So now then we get to the third layer, which is how I justify what I do. So there's what I know, and then there's what I do with what I know, and how I justify my application, right, of what I know. So he's seeking clarity and Jesus is gonna give it to him about how he's applying what he knows. So then there's how I justify what I do based on what I know about God, right? And then lastly, the last layer is how God justifies. So he wants to know 
how loving God and loving my neighbor as myself, what it looks like, there's the way that he goes about applying that and how he justifies his application of that. And then he's seeking, well, God, how do you justify, you know, who the neighbor is? So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because he wants to know if he's doing it right, okay? So that's the setup, all right? Now Jesus drops the bomb with this, with this response to his question of who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down on the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, Jesus said, which of these three, Levite, priest, or Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus says, go and do Likewise. Wow. So on the heels of a man wanting to justify uh, how he lives for God, uh, after declaring what he knows uh, is true, Jesus drops this bomb on him and evaporates functionally his perception of the neighbor. You see, the mentality for the Levite, the priest, the expert in the law was... um, I don't get messy, all right? If uh, my application of treating my neighbor as myself is, you come to me, all right? I don't go to you. And Jesus just obliterates that idea and obliterates the, the, the justification of passing by. I mean, they see, they process, they pass by. Next guy sees, processes with his mind, makes a decision, passes by. But a Samaritan, right, the unlikely and hated ethnic figure in the story for the expert in the lot, Jesus lifts that person up and says, they came upon it. It was an interruption. They saw, they felt, they they went to the need. He came to him and then divested himself uh, of his own schedule, his own resources, his own money, his own oil, his own wine, his own time to take care of the man who was victimized and then stayed around in ongoing commitment. Maybe not physically, but said, I'll come back, I'll reimburse you, right? So let's unpack that, all right? What is Jesus kind of, picking apart and exposing for us today. What's, what's God saying, all right? Well, let's just kind of look at four things, all right? Number one, uh, 
Claims involve words, okay? Claims involve words. So he claimed to know uh, how to inherit eternal life. That's love God um, and love people or love your neighbor as yourself, all right? Then it goes to Jesus's story of the Good Samaritan. And we see after claims involve words, conduct involves actions, right? Pretty simple. Claims involve words. I'm just declaring it. I'm declaring what I know. I declare that, yep, this is what God wants me to do. But then conduct involves actions. And then we see the third X factor, which is where the parable of the Good Samaritan really intersects. And that is that conduct alone validates your claims. Okay, so there's a priest, there's a Levite, they know the same things that the expert in the law knows, but they don't apply what they know in a real-time situation, in a real moment where there's a real need. I mean, we see Jesus do this in the Gospels, right? In, in the sixth chapter of Luke, verse 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, there's your claim, and don't do what I say, there's your conduct. And then we get into the last layer, which sort of seals Jesus's position on the man of God, the person in need, and the response when God calls him into that. And that is that the cost. That cost communicates commitment. All right, conduct alone validates claims, but then cost communicates true commitment. I mean, this guy, A, gave away his own dignity, right? And divested himself to lift up this man, literally, physically, put him on his own donkey, right? It cost him time, it cost him resources, it cost him money, it cost him ongoing commitment. Hey, if there's any extra, I'm gonna come back and I'll just figure out, we'll settle up but I wanna make sure that you take care of this man. So it's a powerful uh, and prophetic word, I think, for what God wants us to do in this culture right now. Um, there is a moment right now where it's easy to retreat into your own space, retreat into your own tribe, retreat into your own political movement, but for the man of God, uh, it doesn't matter what space you're in, who you're with, what color their skin is, if they're old, they're young, if it's a man or a woman. If there's a need and someone is in need and you have the ability to bring yourself to the table, all right, your conduct validates your claim to be a Christian and a Christ follower, right? And the cost uh, communicates your level of commitment your time, your resources? Where is God calling you into action in your structured relationships? Might be your family or friends or church. Where is God gonna call you? Because he is. He's gonna bring guys like the chemistry professor into your life where behind that face, there's all these divine doors that God wants to open. But if you retreat into your space, if you don't, if you don't in faith, all right, work past your feelings and get into your commitment to Christ by treating your neighbor as yourself and asking questions and waiting for answers and seeking God for the best interest of that person in the moment, you're gonna miss it. And man, I'll tell you, this culture right now, 
needs good Samaritans who are ready to see and enter needs and situations. You know, on this theme of my claim versus my conduct, my words versus my actions, and cost and commitment. In James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, listen to what the Bible says that just kind of affirms everything we're talking about, about you, people, and needs. Okay, it says this, dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words, but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Man, that's powerful. Medicine, man of God, where it's you, it's a person in need, and you're blessing them with words and, you know, I'll pray for you without just saying, what do you need? And we say this all the time with this global community of men here on the Everyman Global Livestream. You should be asking this question whenever your life intersects for any length of time with people. What do you need? and wait for the response. And you may not be able to provide exactly what they need, but you might know someone, or you might be able to enter that need and over time help meet that need. But this, this scripture is powerful. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? It's nonsense for a man of God to be in the space with people who have these needs and the kingdom of God is at work in that space. You're here and not enter in to that practically and functionally, not with claims, but with conduct that validates your claim that you follow Christ. This is powerful medicine for us men in this cultural moment. So what's God looking for from me? What's God looking for from you? Wherever you are listening to this message, does he want God talk in the moment or does he want God acts in the moment? In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, it highlights this whole theme we've been talking about today. God's word says this, this is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. My dear children, let's just not talk about love. Let's practice real love. What's God saying to us? As, as spirit-empowered men, as men who claim to, to follow Jesus, God's clearly saying and teaching us that people will almost always forget God talk. They will forget words. And by the way, in this culture, you're competing with 
billions of other words flying at people, making commitments to people, making asks to people, making promises to people. But you know what people will never forget? They'll never forget how you made them feel. And sacrificial love and service and meeting needs makes them feel, listen, makes them feel valuable and it gives them dignity the dignity of an image bearer. Every person God has put into your life has value and they have dignity. Why? Because they're an image bearer. They bear his image and are due respect, due compassion, their due protection, their due Mercy, if it's called for, provision and help and encouragement and support. Why? Because they're a creation of God. They have immediate dignity. So all of this talk of divisions and tribes and skin colors, that doesn't matter to God. They're an image bearer. And we don't need a movement, philosophical or political, to tell us what we already know. And that's what God is saying. You're gonna love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you live out my purpose. And it's okay to struggle with it, but I want you to reflect on who's doing the asking. I want you to repent, have a change of mind and a change of action and get in there and do it. So to sort of help us out, with this strong, strong word. Um, the Lord told me that we're gonna go to prayer and we're going to pray together um, live. Uh, if you're listening to this recorded, you're gonna pray with us uh, in the spirit and the Holy Spirit is gonna make this prayer alive at the moment that you pray it because this is a prayer to God and remember, God has a stethoscope. He's seeing past your justifications, past your actions, past your struggle, and he's got his stethoscope trained right now on your heart and on your intentions. So let's go to the Lord right now in prayer. Would you just agree with me? And you can just say it out loud wherever you are. Just say, Lord, in any given moment today, with any given person, today. Help me act in love for you and for them first. So I can talk about you to them and have it be meaningful. Forgive me for not understanding that my mission field from you is right where I am with who I am with. Lord, let me be the one today who asks, what do you need? And take steps to meet it. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So receive that. Receive your commission today. If you meant that prayer with your heart, guess what? God's gonna bring you into structured and unstructured moments with people and behind their faces, 
is an unfolding, miraculous story that you entering into their lives is going to trigger and unfold. Don't miss that opportunity. We'll see you next week.